Welcome wherever you are in the world today. Thank you for listening once again. It is Friday the 5th of June and this is the Hot Topics podcast from MB Medical. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening. My name is Neil Tucker. I'll be taking you through this Hot Topics podcast for the next 20 minutes or so, as per usual. Apologies, it's taken a while to get this podcast out to you. Last week, I was off enjoying the weather with the children during half term, exploring the local area in a way that I haven't done for 15 years since we moved to Oxford. It turns out there's some beautiful spots right on our doorsteps. This led to my first experience of swimming in the Thames which has left me with some very fond memories, but also a vasculitic looking rash around the bottom of both of my legs. Now, I'm fairly confident that this is not COVID related, but this week in our practice, I think as part of a research study, we have received a bunch of coronavirus self-swabs, which we can use twice a week, symptoms or no symptoms, to see if we may be carrying coronavirus. So this is for all of the practice staff. It is entirely voluntary. And I can't work out if it's my moral obligation to regularly swab myself to make sure that I am not a threat to other staff and patients or if this is an ill-conceived exercise which fails to understand statistics very well, given that at least right now we will be in a very low prevalence population. So the chance of a positive being a true positive becomes relatively lower. The whole thing was making my brain hurt a little bit, and then I realised that we could use this as a team-building opportunity. Rather than do self-swabs, we could swab each other, which presumably is going to be somewhat more accurate. Plus, it gives the opportunity for some cathartic release. You choose the member of staff that's irritated you the most over the last seven days. You get to ram a swab down the back of their nose. It might just help get rid of some of that lockdown tension. Speaking of tension, so today we're going to talk about the news and we're going to talk about race and government policies. We'll, of course, have a look at some of the latest research in coronavirus and then we'll round it up with two new studies which are non-COVID related as well. So, of course, race has been in the news in the last two weeks with the killing of George Floyd in America after a police officer knelt on his neck for nine minutes until he was dead. The fact that if you kneel on someone's neck for an extended period of time, you will kill them seems pretty apparent to just about everyone in the world apart from the elected government in the United States. So it's no surprise that there's been protests and riots around the country. But this is just the spark. This is not what built the bonfire. This has been going on for decades, even centuries. And if there was any positive of the coronavirus pandemic, it's to further highlight the massive inequalities that they've had between white Americans and ethnic minorities. And of course, we think a lot about healthcare, and there is huge health inequalities here. But it goes much deeper than that. It goes down to earning power, education, housing. And all of this has resulted in a death rate from coronavirus in the black population being twice that of their white counterparts. Now, we might like to think that things are much better here in the UK, but there are still significant inequalities. And research has shown that there is unconscious bias in healthcare professionals and how they manage people of different ethnicities. 
One wonders if this is true even at the highest levels. And this week we had a government report publish acknowledging the greater risks that BAME healthcare professionals face in light of coronavirus. But the report didn't go on to make any specific recommendations about how to mitigate these risks. Is this more unconscious bias or is this simply a reflection that the people that were writing this report just don't know how to deal with this situation? Around half my year at medical school were BAME students and these friends and peers are now the GPs and consultants leading healthcare around the country. If we lost half of our working population, GP surgeries in hospitals would be absolutely stuffed. So what is the solution? Well, if you'd opened up the BJGP that popped through your letterbox this week, you'll have seen a group of very good editorials one of which was talking about protecting the health of doctors in primary care. The simple conclusion is that people should have individual personalised risk assessments and we all need the best protection that we can get for the work that we are doing. Thankfully, we have the government looking out for us. Oh no, wait, governments around the world have gone absolutely bonkers. In the UK, we've had the scenes this week of Jacob Rees-Mogg forcing MPs to go in standing queues in enclosed spaces to physically vote for whether it's safe to physically go to Parliament. He still can't see the irony. And while we may think that Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock have gone truly off the deep end, you only have to look at the desperation in some other countries such as Greece and Italy and Portugal as well all desperate for tourism income, all opening their borders up for the summer holidays with their arms open to people around the world. It seems that science has gone out the window. But perhaps before we judge too quickly, we need to look at what's happening in science ourselves. So on to COVID-related news and research. And you will remember a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine initial poster children for the cure of coronavirus, and then a paper published in The Lancet two weeks ago reported increased deaths in patients receiving these medications, especially in combination with azithromycin due to cardiac causes, particularly arrhythmias thought to be due to QT prolongation. Around the world, this has halted many, many studies into hydroxychloroquine simply abandoned because of these safety concerns. But within days of this paper being published, hundreds of scientists and researchers wrote to The Lancet saying they were worried about discrepancies in the data. The number of trial participants just didn't seem to add up with the size of the local hospitals and populations and potential numbers of coronavirus cases that they should be seeing in those areas. Today, The Lancet has retracted the paper. So it's not clear if the authors have deliberately falsified their data or if they have received bad data from various sources and not adequately checked its authenticity. Regardless, it has had a significant impact in hydroxychloroquine studies around the world. No doubt people who previously might have been quite keen to participate will be much less inclined due to concerns. And it really demonstrates the power of bad or illegitimate research, just in the same way that Andrew Wakefield managed with MMR. Having said all of that about hydroxychloroquine, last podcast we talked about two BMJ papers which published that failed to show any benefit from it. And today we have a 
paper that's published in the New England Journal of Medicine, a randomized controlled trial of post-exposure prophylaxis for COVID-19 using hydroxychloroquine, which also failed to demonstrate any benefits. So no doubt, bad research needs to be called out. It needs to be removed from the literature. But it does seem increasingly unlikely that hydroxychloroquine is going to be any magic bullet for coronavirus. Now, one of the new recommendations made in the UK, at least in England yesterday, was that people travelling on public transport from the 15th of June will need to be wearing a face mask. And this has prompted a lot of debate with very prominent medical figures arguing both for and against the role of face masks, quoting evidence to support their respective arguments. And I wonder if this is a peculiarly British argument. I had to pause then. Do you know, I've just had to record this section almost 10 times because I cannot say the word peculiarly. Anyway, maybe this is a uniquely British argument because around the world, the public have widely adopted face masks. And um, you do wonder, you look at our European counterparts, many of whom seem to be doing much, much better in their daily rates of coronavirus and deaths. And whilst there's a huge number of different variables in play here, one of the big differences is the use of masks since lockdown restrictions have been eased. Plenty of people in my local area seem to be wearing masks all over the place, including when they're riding bikes around and in deserted streets. But there's also significant resistance to it. And I wonder if this really is some kind of British sensibility. Weighing into the debate is a new Lancet paper that's just published. So a systematic review and meta-analysis on physical distancing, face masks and eye protection to prevent person-to-person transmissions of SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. It found no randomised controlled trials. No surprise there. That's what people keep on calling for, even though that's quite complex to do and time is not on our side. But it did find 172 observational studies from across 16 countries and six continents. And the authors reported the benefits of social distancing of a metre or more. So that would appear to reduce the chance of transmission by over 80%. And that gets more effective the greater the distance, unsurprisingly. They suggest that face masks can reduce transmission by 85% or so, with the most effective masks being, unsurprisingly, those offering greater protection like the FFP3 mask that we don't have a whiff of in primary care. And then eye protection was also effective. So they found this to be true not just in healthcare settings, but in public settings as well. So while I dare say you can find data that argues things in another way, perhaps we do all need to be embracing the idea of face masks out and about in busy places, especially inside. We spend a lot of time thinking about the physical, but it's worth thinking about the mental effects of COVID too. Initially, I was surprised to see that actually there seemed to be a fall in mental health issues during the first month or two of lockdown. And whether it's the um, ability to relax from work or study or the lack of choices that are available to us and a simplification of many of our lifestyles, many of our patients' moods and anxieties seem to improve and contacts went down. However, now we're seeing a bit of an uptick in that. And I've definitely had more severe mental illness rearing its ugly head. So episodes of psychosis, severe eating disorders and the like this week. 
This mirrors a report from the Royal College of Psychiatrists that has been published in the last couple of weeks, which is forecasting a tsunami of mental illness. And they've seen a drop off in their levels of routine work, but a significant rise by even 50% or so in urgent cases. So people are waiting longer, they're presenting late, they're presenting unwell. So, of course, as ever, we're going to have to end up dealing with a lot of this in primary care. And there are some useful resources out there. So I saw on the Mind website, they've got some good information about coronavirus and people's mental health, lots of information resources. There's a helpline as well that people can phone if they need to have a chat. Also, um, IAP services around the country are doing a pretty good job at providing some useful information too. And if you fancy knowing a bit more about mental health issues during the coronavirus pandemic, then do join us for our Hot Topics webinar on mental health and COVID-19. It's free. It's live. It'll be on demand as well. You can see it Tuesday, 8pm, 9th of June. Simon Curtis will be joined by a number of mental health experts who will be um, talking through the issues. Now, two more bits of research to discuss, and these are not coronavirus related, or at least not directly. So the first was looking at the use of the news score in primary care, and this was published in the BJGP. Now, the BJGP had been much derided over the years, but I think it is going from strength to strength. And this month's edition is really on the money. It's got some great editorials, it's got some good research, it's got some good clinical learning as well. And I've also been enjoying, if you've not come across this before, the BJGP Life website, which is their um, open access online counterpart, which has a different flavour from the journals. So it includes lots of viewpoints and editorials from um, GPs and specialists from around the world, lots of very timely commentaries on coronavirus. And the beauty of it is that it gets updated much faster than a standard print journal production cycle. So it is bang up to date. Now, back to the news. Uh, No, I don't mean the start of the podcast where we talk about the news. No, I mean the National Early Warning Score System and this BJGP paper. So news has been around in secondary care for the last eight years. It comprises of a number of different basic observations. So respirate, um, SATs, temperature, systolic blood pressure, heart rate and level of consciousness. Each of those values is scored from zero to three, depending on the degree of derangement. And that correlates with risk of sepsis and mortality. Now, it's never been formally adopted in primary care. So this was an observational study, the first of its kind, looking at using news in primary care to see whether it could improve patient outcomes. So it was conducted in the southwest, 13,000 GP referrals were analysed and they were comparing those referrals that had the news score to those that were referred without. The key finding was that those patients where GPs had done a news score and it was raised, they had a much faster transfer time to hospital and a much faster time with medical assessment at the other side. So clearly, because it's so ingrained in hospital staff and in ambulance call handlers, where they're given this information, beneficial processes click into place, which potentially could have a big impact for some of our unwell patients. It certainly suggests there's a good rationale for using the news score in primary care, particularly when we're making referrals for unwell patients. 
Now, our last study of the day is a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at liraglutide use for a year in overweight adolescents. And something about this stuck in my mind because there's been a lot of talk about the environment, the benefits that we've seen during the lockdowns with the pandemic, and how we can then translate this into a more sustainable future. And this is something for us to think about, not just on a national level and an international level, but on a practice and um, practice population level as well. Obesity is one of the biggest challenges that we're all going to face over the next few decades. It drives both physical and mental ill health. It increases medicalization and medicine use. Liraglutide is already licensed as an obesity management tool in conjunction with reduced calorie diets and exercise. And there is a specific dose formulation that's recommended for this indication, which is marketed in the, in the UK as Sexenda. Currently, it's not recommended by NICE as part of obesity management. However, in the US, it's used as a fairly standard treatment. Now, this study takes it to the logical conclusion, which is that if you're going to treat obesity, you might as well treat it at a young as age as possible to prevent morbidity developing. So they enrolled 12 to 18-year-olds from five different countries around the world, including Belgium, Mexico, Sweden, Russia and the States all who had a BMI of over 30, and then they gave them liraglutide three milligrams daily subcutaneously for 56 weeks, or they had a placebo dummy injection for 56 weeks, and then they were all followed up for another half a year after that to see what happened to their weight. By the end of the 56 weeks, those who were on liraglutide had lost 3% of their body weight and those on placebo had gained 2% compared with their baselines. And then at the 26 weeks after they'd finished treatment, the liraglutide group gained 1.5% of their body weight compared with the initial um, starting weight, whilst the placebo group gained almost 5%. So by the end of the study, there's a three and a half percent difference in the total body weight of participants in favour of the active group. But compared with their pre-trial weight, both groups went up. This was done in 125 adolescents in both groups. So this was a statistically significant difference that they found. And some weight loss shouldn't be a surprise given the fact that 65% of the active treatment group reported nausea or vomiting twice as much as the placebo group. If you're going to feel nauseated for a year, you probably won't eat as much. Having a regular hangover may be as effective. So it's hard to get too excited about this treatment option. Yes, there appears to be an interruption in the upward trajectory of weight gain in these adolescents with the treatment, but it is a temporary interruption. And whilst you may think that the obvious conclusion would therefore be to keep going with the liraglutide for many years and continue that interruption, the data actually showed that people's weight was already going up during the second half of the year that they were on the active treatment. Perhaps we need a different approach. And I've been thinking a lot about lifestyle medicine over the last few months, which I think could provide a way to demedicalize the population and provide a greener and more sustainable type of healthcare. But there's still a lot that we don't understand about weight management. And if it was easy, people would be losing weight all over the place. And they're clearly not. It's not for want of trying.
Another really interesting study that I saw briefly reported in Minerva in the BMJ a couple of weeks ago was a study where participants wore a weighted vest for a month or so. And they found that this drove weight loss compared with controls. And this is due to the body having a recognised set point for weight, which it will keep on trying to get back to either by driving um, increased or decreased eating, depending on whether someone is under or overweight. And you have to maintain weight loss for several weeks before that set point will get reset. Bit by bit, our understanding will improve and hopefully that will mean that we can counsel our patients more effectively and more individually. At some point in the next year, we are going to do a webinar on the environment and general practice and hopefully on lifestyle medicine as well. So watch this space. So that is it for today. Thank you so much for joining us once again. I will let you get back to your relaxing weekend or your busy week of work your COVID toes or your river-induced vasculitis. Do join us on Tuesday night for our free mental well-being and COVID-19 webinar. And as ever, you can get hold of us on Twitter at GP Hot Topics, on Facebook or via email hottopics at mbmedical.com. Look after yourself. Bye-bye.